Welcome to Interludes Extra. I'm your host, Valerie Johnson, and today we feature first-time children's author and New York educator, Gina Paul. Her book, I Am Not Being Lazy, I Just Don't Understand, has become a top-reviewed book under the Amazon Kindle titles. Earlier in our first season, Miss Paul was featured in our education episode, specifically talking about how different the current 2020-2021 school season would be as we face the pandemic. In this expanded version of our interview, we talk about her inspiration in creating the book, her formative years in Haiti, transitioning into America, and the challenges she faces as an educator on the front lines. Here's my full interview with Gina Paul. I'm Valerie Johnson, and you're listening to Interludes. I'm so excited that I have a good friend of mine on. She is, a, this is her first time publishing, first part time published author, wonderful children's book. Let's have that title. It's I am not being lazy. I just don't understand. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, Gina Paul, to the podcast. How are you? I am good. Thank you, Valerie. How are you? I am very excited because anyone that starts on a new path of something spectacular like writing a book, a children's book, um, I just took a look at a couple of the chapters, your illustrator, what's the name of your illustrator? DG Self-Publishing. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, yes, that's the publisher, that but who did who did the illustrations for your book? Well, it's um, it's it's kind of like a team effort. Um, the okay. company, the, the the two people who actually headed the company, um, their husband and wife um, group duo, and it's um, Shamira Hill and Donnie Hill. And um, and there um, there are other people, of course, in the background, but they're the but they're the two who headed everything. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. All right. Well, anyway, let's let's get into it. My, my friend Gina is from Haiti, and I, the only few things that I've learned in Creole is ça passe, not boule, ça passe. <laughs> That's all not I know. <laughs> <laughs> and what does that mean? It's kind of like what's going on. It's like yeah, I'm great. You know, I'm good. So it's like a way of just saying yeah, you know, I'm doing it. I'm doing my thing. Wonderful. What's up? What are your earliest memories of Haiti? Uh, my earliest memories of myself, my mom, and my two sisters in Haiti. Um, because my dad left and came to the U.S. when I was about two, two and a half. Um, so I didn't really have any memory of him until I came to the U.S. at the age of 10. So my earliest memories were pretty much of um, my, 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 just the women in my family. Because my other brothers were too young. They were not born yet. And um, so therefore, that was my earliest memories. And um, I just love it. Uh, however, another just really funny memory um, that kind of goes with that time was that I hated school. And then whenever um, I would go to school the first two days and I would not go to school the next three. And my mom, it was a battle for me to for me to go to school. And then she would leave me, she would take me to school and I would stand there, I would cry the whole time. And then she'll come and pick me up around 12, 12.30 and I would still be crying at the same spot. <laughs> Those are some and, of my and, early memories. Wow, okay. And how did you learn that you guys were coming to America? Sounds like a movie title, but when did you guys, when did you find that out? <laughs> 
when I was about five, my mom, my dad sent for my mom. So my mom then came to the, to the US. So my sisters and I, we were left in the care of my, my mom's eldest sister, my aunt and her husband. So the only reason that we knew we were leaving was when um, my aunt said we had to go take pictures for our passports. And I'm like, passports? And that's how we found out that we were coming to America. Because it's, it's very different. Back in those days, um, people didn't sit down and discuss with your children, like, hey, listen, this is what's happening. This is what we're going to do. It was just like, by the way, you know, you're packing, we're leaving. That's how, I, that's how we found out. <laughs> oh my gosh. Interesting. <laughs> I, bet, I bet that was, that was a life-changing experience for you as well. It was, it was. What are some essential elements of Haitian culture that it's important for Americans to know? Uh, Haitian people are very warm. And I feel like um, around the world, people have this really huge misconception about Haiti that, um, you know, that we are a poor country who who are uneducated, who don't know any better, who, you know, but what they don't, what they forget is that we are the first black nation to gain our independence. And they forget that. And Haiti have helped many other countries gain their independence. And we are very resilient. Um, group of people. We are loving, we're kind, and we're an island, so therefore there's a lot to do, and there's a lot of beautiful places in Haiti. I'm telling you, Google it, go into YouTube, you will see the videos, you will see our beaches, you will see so many beautiful places to visit, but pe but that's not what the media show. That's not what is the popular belief about Haiti. So I, I would very much like people to know that yes, Haiti has its, its challenges, like any other country, but we are a great nation. Um, full of people who are kind, who are um, open-hearted and open-armed, always willing to receive others. I can definitely attest to that because um, being in Brooklyn or living in Brooklyn for the last uh, 18 or so years, my closest friends are Haitian and I've, I can definitely just attest to that. What is the biggest difference you've noticed about life in America compared to that in Haiti? I said the biggest difference is, um, I, mean, I mean, they're two different countries. So therefore, um, the um, the culture is different. The beliefs are different. Um, the people are different. Um, I remember um, when I first came to the US, we were not allowed to play outside. It was just not done. Of course, this was also the 80s. Um, okay. So, and I, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, Flatbush area. So we were not allowed to play outside. Well, in Haiti, kids just went wild and free. You go, you know, you go here, you go there, you in front of your house, you jumping rope, you doing all of this, all of that. That right. when I come to the U.S., it was like, you, you guys are, you know, the siblings stay in the house. That's what you're going to do. And mm -hmm. that was a huge culture shock for me. Because when, whenever I used to go to my grandparents' um, house, which they were in a village in Haiti, and we used to be gone from the time the sun came up until right before the sunset, that's when we all came back. And we were like eight, nine, seven, running around, you know, all the aunties and uncles' homes, and nobody really knew where we were, but they knew we were gonna come back. They knew exactly. nobody was gonna harm us. But mm -hmm. coming here and having to stay in an apartment all day, it was a culture shock. Wow, my gosh. I, I know here in Chicago growing up, we were just mandated to get home before the street lights came on. You could be out near or around, but you know, it was a little bit different because we grew up, I grew up in a, like a middle-class uh, area and I played with kids down the street and stuff like that. And I know just going from, 
outdoors where you can just experience life and then to be in an apartment because I, I now have a sense of New York and how Brooklyn is and just going and you can only play inside of an apartment that would that would feel very restricting it was it really was um mm -hmm. and from having so many kids to play with because we had a lot of cousins our neighbors from that to like just us that's it just the siblings and um i mean although like you know we we did a lot as a family to bring out to you know to get closer to each other but mm -hmm. as far as like the outside world in terms of like other children um to go outside and play no as a matter of fact i remember a funny story quickly my um um one day we decided since my parents normally come home around mm -hmm. 5 5 30 so we're like okay let's you know we could go outside and play what is it that the one time we did that is the one time my parents came home early? We, we all got in trouble. It was so oh bad. no! <laughs> it was so bad. But it was that one time, the first and only time. And then after that, it was like we're good. We think we thought they had like some kind of um, we thought they had somebody watching us or something because it's just right. no way that one time, and that's when we got caught. <laughs> <laughs> so being here in America, I, you decided to become a teacher. When did that happen for you? Um, when I was under, I was doing my undergrad upstate at Buffalo. Um, people were like, oh, you know, you should do, you should do your undergrad in education. And I was like, oh no, girl, uh -uh. Ed uh, education does not pay. You know, it takes years before you really start to make good money. And we're like, no, you really good. You love children. You're really good with children. I was like, no, no, I'm good. And then, so I went and I did my undergrad in economics. And then I then went on to um, coming back to New York City and I worked for an accounting firm for a little while. But then when everything happened back in 08, 09, um, I lost my job. So then, you know, it took some soul searching. It's like, okay, I could either go back to doing what I was doing where I was working 16, 17, 18 hours at times where I was. So I remember one time I had like 80 hours in one week, you know, or do I want to do something that, you know, it's not going to make me as much money, but I'll have my sanity back. So I started praying about it. I'm like, you know what, God, you know, it's, you're going to have to help me out with this one. So I remember myself, um, my sister and one of my girlfriends, Jesse, who used to live here. And we, we would talk, we were talking and I'm like, okay, let's all pray about it. I'm like, then I was like, you know what, um, God, I'm going to apply for one college for my master's degree in education. If I get in, that's your sign that says that this is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> but if it's not, if I didn't get in, then that means that's not what you want me to do. But not only did I get in, you know, but um, I ended up, you know, excelling at it, you know, and I didn't do like the greatest in undergrad, but in grad school, you know, I'm part of, you know, the Kappa Delta Pi, which is um, the educational society. Um, so I was like, okay, I guess this is what I was meant to do. But then I loved it. You know, I've loved it and I've been doing it for years now. And I have to say that this is what I was meant to do. Wow. I didn't want to, but God was like, no, we're gonna, let, let's come on. Let's just come over the side. Just roll this way. Come on, come on, Miss Gina, come on. Yes, yeah, like roll this way, come on. Yeah, I know, I know. Anyway, um, as a former teacher here in Chicago, yes, I used to teach at one point i started to understand the social and economic challenges in maintaining nurturing relationships with my students as mm -hmm. a special education teacher there in new york what have been some of your most challenging days and what have been some of your most rewarding experiences in the classroom 
I think some of my um, challenging days is working with difficult parents. Um, <laughs> and I say that because, and I do understand that some parents have very challenging time. And I can't say I'm the, I'm the most perfect or the best teacher in the world, but what I can say is I try to work with my parents as much as possible. And I truly am a strong believer in homeschool connection because I have seen some students who I look at the potential, the raw talent that I know this kid could do so much better if the parents invested some time and some you know in helping but unfortunately sometimes either the parents just don't have it in them because they themselves sometimes have disabilities right and then you also have um some parents who to in their mindset is education is in the school when you come at home it's like you know i make sure you are fed i make sure you clothe i make sure you have a roof on your head and then here's a um, ipad here's the television and I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to, you know, you have to work with me. Let's do some work at home. Here are some videos you guys, if you know, you guys can watch and then do X, Y, Z. You know, here's some stuff you can practice at home. Here's this, here's that. And I know the person, oh, but I, I work long hours. I'm like, I understand that. 15 minutes, 10 minutes. Some of my students, because I work with children with extreme disability. Um, um, some of my students, six, seven years old, are still in pull-ups. So one of the one of the most challenging thing is is potty training. So I'm like, okay, let's try to figure out a way to make it work for all of us. Okay, um, but sometimes some parents are like, nope, you guys do it in the school, I'm good. And I'm just like, but if you don't do it at home, we only do it in the school, it will be much longer, it will be more challenging, but it's, you know, it's hard to do it. But to me, some of the most rewarding is seeing the changes. Oh, seeing the changes in my kids from like September to June. They yeah. come in, sometimes they have that really like vacant look on their faces and they're um, they're completely nonverbal. They don't, they don't utter not a word. And sometimes you're speaking to them and it's like, they're just looking at you with a blank look. And then September, uh, and then June come around, they, uh, they try hard to communicate with you by uttering certain words. When you do certain things, you know, they're following along. And it is, it gives me chills because you realize how hard it is for them to process certain information and how much, how far they have, they have come from September to June to get to where they're at. For some people, they're more like, that's not much of a difference or change, but for our kids, that's a huge leap. So to me, even a small difference, a small gain, that's a huge leap for them. So for that, that always warms my heart. Wake up all the teachers, time to teach a new way. Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say. Let me pivot a little bit now. We're talking about your book, I Am Not Lazy. I just don't understand. Looking at the title of your book, are there still educators, your peers, who incorrectly categorize children as being lazy instead of looking for obstacles that, that they may be facing, like dyslexia or other conditions? Oh, absolutely. I think, because you know, um, in any professions, you have those who are willing to go the extra mile and sometimes it's just to do their jobs. And you have those who simply don't care. You know, I, I have to say I'm fortunate to work with a lot of people who do care, you know, who would go the extra, you know, to the extra mile. But it's not everyone who's willing to do that. Because I remember when I first started working um, in the field, 
and I had this one student who it was just like everything no matter what we do he'll just look at you he doesn't do anything and I'm just why is this boy so lazy and I remember saying it to myself I wouldn't say it to him but I was like why is this boy so lazy and then you know I'll go back and then then I and then as time progressed I was like and I remember someone slamming a door and all the kids jump but he didn't so I was like, what is that? So I remember speaking to the teacher, we we're having a conversation and I was, and we were like, we don't think he could hear. We don't think the boy can hear. So I was like, okay, so we start doing experiments. Like we make sure he's backwards to the door and then we will slam the door and all the kids would jump because the kids jump and look and look towards the door. He, he would just turn around and look towards the door. Not because he himself heard it at whatever level that we heard it. He then we later on find else. out. Mm -hmm. Yep. We later on found out that um, one ear, he, he, he could hear so little in it that um, that it actually, um, when you slam a door, it's almost like, it's like a whisper to him. But yet, one the other ear, he was completely definite. Okay. So, so, so you we, guys we were able know. to diagnose, you guys were able to find out that he couldn't Exactly. And I think that was one of those things that's kind of, and it reminded me like, listen, Gina, remember when you first started, when you first came to the U.S., how it was with you? Like, why would you subject anyone to that kind of um, um, judgment when you, mm -hmm. you know, when people could have, you know, were judging you, you know, although differently, but we're still judging you. And it's not, it's not cool. And so I think that that's what helped me, you know, with the title of the book, like, you know, I'm not being lazy. I just don't understand because a lot of the times, um, not a lot of times, most of the times we don't, I don't even, I think all the time, it's not that the kids are lazy. We just have to really find out what it is that they need. It's not them who needs to change. It's, it's us, the teachers. We need to find out how they learn. We need to right. find out what it is that interests them. Because as adults, I real as an adult, I can speak for myself. I realize mm -hmm. if something doesn't interest interest me, I could space out. Exactly. You know, if I'm in a meeting and whatever you say does not interest me, I will space out. I'm looking out the window. I'm doodling. <laughs> I'm, you know, and I'm like, it's the same thing with children. It's like if whatever you're saying, you're not teaching it to however they need you to teach it to them, then exactly. you're going to lose them. Yeah, and it's probably a fight for um, every teacher to be able to keep and captivate their students' attention. And yes. that's that's a that's a skill and it should be paid for as a <laughs> as a profession. Let me tell what, you. The title character of your book is Georgette. Now I'm assuming the name came from your mom? My mom. My mom. Beautiful. The two main hey. characters, Georgette and Arnold, my mom and my dad. That, I wanted to honor both of them since they passed away. Yeah, I, I thought that I, I got a sense of that because I was thinking I, I love the name and I've, I was I told you just before the interview when I was reading through a couple of the chapters I was kind of you put a reader into that space, that headspace of what Georgette was feeling. And then mm -hmm. to actually use the actual Creole to say, okay, this is what I'm saying and I need to be able to translate it. And then Arnold comes and he helps her, helps her. And I'm thinking, my gosh, this is, this is a, this is a beautiful story. If Georgette um, was dealing uh, with how would Georgette deal with coming to America during our current pandemic? Oh, wow. 
I think it will be really, really challenging because um, I feel like coming into a new country, um, not speaking the language, and then, because um, because the whole premise of the book is the fact she, you know, she's new to the country, she doesn't right. speak the language, and now she's in a classroom full of monolinguals who only speak English, and now she has to muddle her way through everything that's going on in the classroom. So to have, to come into a country to deal with that, and then dealing with a pandemic, that's a whole nother ballgame. Because one of the most um, um, important things for kids to know now is, um, is understanding what coronavirus is. Now you have to figure out how to break this down to a child who doesn't even speak the language. So I think it would be very challenging. Oh, wow. Um, how many, if any, of Georgette, Georgette's challenges were similar to those you faced coming to America? You kind oh, of spoke plenty. about it, but yeah. Plenty. Um, I know for me, because um, I was, because the um, part of the part of the story is kind of like based on my own life. Because I came to the U.S. also when I was ten, and then I was also placed in a classroom where um, I did not have um, anyone in the classroom who spoke my language until they transferred an, um, a boy into my class, who then you know was able to help me. Um, and I was, I'm a very talkative person. I've always loved making friends um, since I was a kid. So coming into a classroom and not being able to make friends, not being able to um, to talk, I feel, I feel like I didn't have a voice. I didn't have a place there. So, um, so I was able to put those emotions into the book to really help either teachers and other students to learn to be empathetic, to learn to have this kind of self-awareness that, you know what, you're not, you're not alone in this world in your own language. There are hundreds and thousands of languages around the world and that, um, that each, like, cause we want to teach the children that, um, that they're not, cause, cause most of our kids around that age, they're very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's everything is always about me, 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 me. And, center of the um, universe, and I, center ego, of the universe thinking. It's yeah, like egotistical, yeah. Type of, you know, type of. So therefore <laughs> we want, you know, we want, I want to, those kids to learn about, um, to be, to be, to have a healthy respect for diversity. You know, mm. I want them to understand that um, being diverse in um, what, it, what it is language or culture or community, it's a good thing. You know, it brings so much perspective. And I want them to have, to, to have that empathy towards another child who's struggling, um, you know, with um, whether it is a language or even with just speech. You know, you have some, you know, my kids who are on the spectrum, you know, so they, most of them are nonverbal. But teaching other kids to be patient with one another because we don't have enough of that. We need to, we need to create a culture in the classroom where the children are able to work with each other and help each other. You don't have to speak the same language. You can work, body language is a language. You can find ways to, you know, to make, you know, to make it work, but you, you, but you have to teach that to your kids. You have to present that to your kids in the classroom, teaching them about social awareness, about self-awareness, about how diversity works. Explain those to them because they don't understand. That's why you have a lot of kids who are bullies because they just don't know any better. Therefore, right. it is up to us. And but the most important people, the parents, because you know sometimes people think education is in the school. No, education starts at home and continues at home. Mm -hmm. There you go. Go ahead and preach, girl. 
lastly, uh, <laughs> lastly, the author James Baldwin. You've heard of him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts on his writing style? And I think recently some of his writings have kind of come up in either movies and recent uh, television um, series. Um, you know what? For me, it's like everyone have their own style of doing things. Mm-hmm. And I believe, because as a matter of fact, we were talking, um, we had some preteen camp um, that we're doing with some of our kids um, for my mm-hmm. church. And we're working about art and some of the kids were talking about, you know, um, writings and how, you know, some of them write and um, they draw the characters for their writing. And I, and I, and one of, one of the things that I said to them was, because um, they were always, they, a lot of them were afraid that, um, that people will not accept them or accept what they do or how they write or about yeah. or their drawing. And one of the things that I said to them was, listen, you are unique to you. Like mm-hmm. the same way James Baldwin is unique to him. He has his own, you know, writing style. And no matter what anyone think about his writing style or my writing style, because I'm new to the game. So um, I'm sure, you know, there's going to be those critics out there as well. But yes, our, you know, our opinions, every, you know, it's, it's our opinion, you know, everyone's gonna have an opinion and it's okay. We're supposed to have opinions. However, no matter what our opinions are, we can't challenge someone about their writing, about what, you know, the style of what they choose to do. You know, if you don't like it, you move on. Yeah. Simple as that. If you don't like it, you move on. Because I think every writing style has an audience. Every story has an audience. Every um, every type of um, um, emotional type of um, literature has an audience, and you just have to pick which one that you want. If you don't want it, move on to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Not everyone loves Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling, oh. you know, oh, you know. I I'm love one of those people. I'm one of those yeah, people. I love Harry yeah. Potter. You don't. That's you know, that's okay. We're entitled. That's what makes us unique because we're mm-hmm. not robots who all believe in the same thing, love the same thing, care about the same thing. If that was the case, then we're all will be um porridge with no with no milk and no sugar. <laughs> and who wants that? That's just creamy stuff. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, Gina, do me a wonderful favor. I am yeah. not lazy. I just don't understand. Where can they get the book? They can get it on um, Amazon. I do have the hard copy and um, I have it in Kindle as well. And for those of you who speaks Creole, who would like to learn Creole, I am currently working on the translation for the Creole version of the book. So it should be coming out soon. So stay tuned. And um, I will make sure that you guys love that one just the same. Wonderful. Oh, my gosh. Ladies and gentlemen, this was Gina Paul, the author of I Am Not Lazy, I Just Don't Understand. Please get it. And can people reach out to you on social media? Absolutely. I, um, I am on Instagram. I am on LinkedIn. I am on Facebook. Um, I, I am on um, Twitter, Gina Paul Author. You will find me under that. And um, my website at authorginapaul.com. Excellent. Thank you so very much. You're with Valerie Johnson. And this is Interludes.
Gina Paul's book, I Am Not Being Lazy, I Just Don't Understand, is available in hardcover and electronic format, both on Amazon.com. Interludes Extra, a pure Lighthouse production. Original concept by Valerie Johnson. Written and produced by Michael Womble and Valerie Johnson. Original intro and outro music produced by Kendall Nesbitt. Our second season of Interludes gets underway with our next episode. On behalf of the Interludes production team, we would like to thank our audience for your continued support. The first full season of Interludes is available on our website. <laughs>